Africa rise and shine Africa zuri Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, ethnic clashes erupt at a UN camp in South Sudan and Malawi rights defenders postpone anti-government protests. In economics news, South Africa's ruling ANC calls for immediate stimulus package and in sports news, Springboks make wholesale changes for the match against Australia. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Zimbabwe has sworn in new members of parliament after the July elections with the ruling ZANU-PF party, commanding a majority of over two-thirds enough to mend the constitution. ZANU-PF won... 145 seats of the 210 seats in the lower house national assembly the mdc alliance got 63 seats while two seats were taken by independence the mps were sworn in following zimbabwe's first election since robert mugabe was ousted last year after nearly four decades in power libyan authorities say more than a week of heavy fighting in the capital Tripoli has come to a halt after the United Nations announced a ceasefire between the warring militia. The Interior Ministry says all parties on the ground have welcomed the ceasefire which was announced on Tuesday and that new security measures will be taken. The Health Ministry says 63 people have been killed and 159 wounded including civilians since the clashes began on the 26th of August. It adds that another 12 are still missing. Paraguay's new government has announced it will move its embassy in Israel back to Tel Aviv just three months after shifting it to Jerusalem. The South American government's foreign minister, Luis Alberto Castiglione, says the move is aimed at helping regional and international peace efforts. The BBC's Leonardo Rochard reports. Paraguay had transferred its embassy to Jerusalem in May, shortly after the United States did the same. The decision angered not only Palestinian officials, who said it effectively recognized Israeli occupation and undermined peace efforts. It was also criticized by Paraguay's sizable Arab community and the then-president-elect Mario Abado, who was sworn in three weeks ago. He said he should have been consulted. Israel has reacted immediately, announcing it will close its embassy in Asuncion. More than 400 people from across West Africa have been rescued from a desert in northern Niger. 
The International Organization for Migration, IOM, says search and rescue teams found the migrants on Monday and Tuesday in two groups at the desert-bordered town of Asamaka. The IOM did not say whether they had been pushed back across the border with Algeria from Algeria, following previous claims by rights groups that migrants were dumped in the remote region. Niger is a transit country for thousands of migrants heading to Libya and Algeria, key hubs for migrants trying to reach Europe. Europe. And finally, the Premier of South Africa's Gauteng province, David Makura, says a report released last week has revealed that seven other buildings in Johannesburg, besides the site of Wednesday's fire, have been identified as being non-compliant with safety regulations. He was speaking at the government building in the CBD where the blaze led to the deaths of three firefighters. Makura has agreed that safety was an issue at the building and says there are more other buildings that are not in good state. We have been working with the unions very closely and workers from time to time themselves raise issues about the conditions of buildings and then we bring the Department of Infrastructure Development to confirm. So as I say, the latest report was just last week. We have seven other buildings and I have taken a decision that we will have to find temporary accommodation for staff in all those buildings. All the staff with regard to the three departments which are in here, for now they can't come to work tomorrow because we are sorting out emergency accommodation for them. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Sporadic fighting within the UN protection camp in South Sudan's capital, Juba, has forced the UN and aid agencies to relocate more than 3,000 internally displaced people to a new place in the center of the city. Channel Africa's James Shimangula has more. The United Nations protected camp in Juba has been home to more than 3,500 internally displaced persons. The persons belong to dozens of South Sudan ethnic groups. But over the past four weeks, ethnic fighting has been happening daily at the camp. For this reason, the United Nations and the international humanitarian agencies thought it wise to relocate the persons to a place in central Juba where their movement within that place and their stay can be easily monitored by a combined force of UN and local security men and women. Good news is that the displaced persons agreed to the relocation. Now humanitarian agencies and the UN mission in Juba are working to upgrade and establish temporary housing in the new place where the internally displaced persons are staying. Alem Deng, one of the displaced persons, now living in the new place, speaking on behalf of others, is hopeful that peace will prevail where they have been relocated. Yeah, we hope peace will come. That's why we trust our leader. He's going to bring us here. We trust him about peace and about our nation. It's going to be good for the future time. The question that arises is whether or not the UN believed that lives of the displaced persons were in danger at the protection camp. 
To provide the answer is United Nations Special Representative in South Sudan, David Sierra. It was a big effort because they had to be moved very quickly. We believed that they were in danger where they were, and that meant everybody had to pull together. So they had humanitarians, the peacekeepers, all working together to put up tents, to locate the site, to liaise with the government, who were very cooperative, to get machinery in to build latrines and water points. A very successful operation done in a very short time. The other question that arises is why the displaced persons decided to leave their communities in rural areas and opted to live at the UN protection camp. David Sierra again. People came into the, the protection of civilian sites because they felt their lives were at risk. As the situation improves and as the peace process evolves, uh, the situation is changing. Camps are terrible pe- places for particularly families and bringing up children. So the more that we can move people voluntarily to their own places and, and set up again, uh, the better. Uh, so we're working now to make sure that that momentum continues where it's possible for them to feel safe. And that is really the responsibility of the government ultimately. The voice of David Sierra, United Nations Special Representative in South Sudan. The UN says within days of the relocation, life is bustling at the site. Drains are being dug by staffers of the UN mission engineers. A new water point has been installed, a health clinic is being equipped, and a daycare center is operating. The UN says while life is still grim, there is hope of good living in the days to come. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. A coalition of Malawi's human rights defenders has postponed its planned Friday demonstrations aimed at forcing President Peter Mutarika to resign. The activists who had the backing of the mother body of religious organizations called Public Affairs Committee and Opposition Parties say the change has been made in the interest of peace, unity and cooperation because ruling DPP supporters have an event in Blantyre on the day of the schedule protest. George Mango reports from Blantai. Despite change in the dates, human rights activists say councils for Lilongwe, Blantai, Zomba and Mzuzu have been notified of the first phase of demonstrations. The defenders are on record to have been accusing Lilongwe and Blantai city councils of frustrating demonstrations which were initially scheduled for Friday this week. Gift Trappens, who is coordinating the whole demonstration, said they wrote the two councils informing them that they wanted to hold demonstrations but expressed surprise that they are not getting any response. He added that Blanta City Council and the Democratic Progressive Party have organized an event on September 7 to deter people from participating in the demonstrations. Uh, 
ways. So we have the problem in terms of respecting the will of the citizens. They don't want to give the ordinary person the, the human rights. That's why they want always to be immune. As a democracy, we need to protect the human rights of all citizens. What is clear now is that members of the Human Rights Defenders would like to hold demonstrations following government's failure to respond convincingly to issues raised in a petition that delivered during the April 27 demonstrations. The public has these observations as well. We have been talking about corruption and even the DBB-led government has been preaching about uh, combating corruption. How come such huge sum, uh, uh, such huge amount of money was paid into the party's account? We as the youth, we are very angry and as the youth in this country, we will see what to do. Because there are so many ways of expressing our anger uh, other than just making s- such calls. We can mobilize ourselves. We can go on the streets until the party or government adheres to our cause. We have also demanded from Pioneer Investment to refund that money back to the people of Malawi because that money was fraudulently gotten through a dubious contract at, at police. The civil society organizations are also concerned with levels of corruption and abuse of state resources, fuel embezzlement at the National Oil Company of Malawi and Electricity Supply Corporation of Malawi, ESCOM. They also want 145 million Malawi kwacha, which pioneer investments donated to the Democratic Progressive Party, DBP, to be returned to the government account. George Mhango, Channel Africa, Plantaya. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. South Africa's National Democratic Lawyers Association, NADL, says there is no need to fear the expropriation of land without compensation. It says nationalization has worked in Australia, the United Kingdom, and even in Mozambique. NADL, Black First, Land First, the Black Lawyers Association, Orania Movement, and the Afrikaner Bond are among the various organizations that made oral presentations to Parliament's Constitutional Review Committee yesterday. The committee has been tasked to review the possibility of amending Section 25 of the South African Constitution to expropriate land without compensation. Mercedes Percent tells us more. Nadel's National Deputy Secretary Yugeshni Neika told parliamentarians that nationalization can work and South Africa can use Mozambique as an example of how land can be nationalized and still attract foreign direct investment and keep the currency stable. No person should be afraid of expropriation without compensation because the rights and the benefits and the use of land can be, it will be given to people in terms of systems of land tenure, freehold, leasehold, public rental, private rental, rental, Aboriginal title, or international heritage. I want to draw your attention to pastoral leases. 44% of the land in Australia is leased to farmers. That land is owned by the Crown. It's the same case in the United Kingdom where 33% of agricultural land is leased and the Crown is the only owner, freehold owner of land 
in the United Kingdom. In Mozambique in 1997, land was nationalized. Uh, people acquired the right to use and benefit the land. Nobody is conferred a right of ownership, but you have leases that go up to 50 years. What, what they've managed to do in Mozambique is they've managed to stabilize their currency. It's one of the most stable currencies in the world, and they've been able, under the same system, to attract foreign direct investment. It's a unique example, it's an African example, and it's an example that South Africa needs to look at. Land First, Black First leader Andy Lemgritama elaborated on some of the BLF's recommendations and a new definition for expropriation without compensation. Land expropriation without compensation means taking land from whites, the beneficiaries of theft, and giving it to black people, the victims of this crime. Land in the hands of black people must be excluded from expropriation. That is why we say, hands off the Nguanyama Trust. Leave the Nguanyama Trust alone. Take land of white people, because that land in white hands is stolen property. Seven, declare any economic activities calculated to subvert the land return program treason, as treason. Even this recession, look at the figures. White people have cost this recession. Agricultural is the biggest contributor to the current recession because they are want to terrorize you through economic terrorism into not touching the land question. The Black Lawyers Association says black women are the most affected by the injustices of land dispossession. Bayete Maswazi represented the Black Lawyers Association. As a result of this dispossession of land, what has, we, we have, uh, what has resulted in about 72% of the land Uh, being uh, owned by the minority and 5% of the land in the hands of the Africans. And we we are all aware that the black uh, female or black women are the worst hit by this injustice of the land being in the hands of the minority. We we have the view that the constitution should be amended in order to allow uh, expropriation of land without compensation. The Afrikaner born called on parliamentarians not to destroy the value of privately owned agricultural land by going ahead to amend section 25 of the constitution to expropriate land without compensation. The secretary general of the Afrikaner bond is Jan Bosman. We say it is important not to disturb and destroy the value of private owned agricultural land. Let's focus first of all on private owned agricultural land. Do not disturb that. There is a gradual process where the so-called white ownership are diminishing and black ownership are increasing. It is market forces are in in action and uh, it's a natural process in the economy. Don't interfere or meddle with that specific uh, section of our property. The Orania movement leader Karl Bosov Jr. also made an oral presentation. He presented while sitting not far away from the seat in which his grandfather, an architect of apartheid Hendrik Verwoet, was stabbed to death more than 50 years ago in the old assembly chamber by Dumitri Zafendas. Bosov Jr. also made the Orania movement's point on amending the constitution. From my personal side, it is quite a certain um, experience to be here today under these uh, very circumstances, keeping in mind that it would be tomorrow, 52 years ago, that my grandfather was killed in this very house, very near to where I am sitting at this moment. That said, I would make the point that we have in South Africa not a simple but a complex history. 
And when we address questions like land, expropriating, compensating or not, it is part of a very complex set of questions to be addressed. To be clear, in terms of the present uh, discourse on Section 25 of the Constitution, we are opposed to an isolated change to that section as such. That said, it is not a static opposition to it. The organizations that made presentations included the Apostolic Faith Mission, the Institute for Black Property Practitioners and the Human Economy Program Division. The committee will continue to hear oral presentations from other stakeholders today. They include the Helen Sussman Foundation and the Human Rights Commission. That report by Mercedes Percent. South Africa's governing ANC has called on government to implement the stimulus package to mitigate the effects of a weak economy. The call comes after Statistics South Africa announced on Tuesday that the country's economy had plunged into a technical recession. Naledi Ngobo reports. In a statement, the ANC Subcommittee on Economic Transformation called for the swift and aggressive implementation of the stimulus package. In August, President Cyril Ramaphosa announced that government would implement implement a 43 billion rand worth stimulus plan to help revitalize the economy. The committee says new and existing economic policies need to be implemented. Enoch Godongwane is the chairperson of the ANC Subcommittee on Economic Transformation. The ANC-led government must take immediate, concrete and bold steps to lift the rate of growth and its inclusivity by activating macroeconomic policy tools institutional efficiencies and specific sector interventions as a central instrument to mitigate the effects of a contraction in economic activity. This requires that there be a significant difference in the aggressiveness and approach through which recovery measures are implemented by the government. Specifically, the stimulus package must be activated immediately. The ANC has further called for close coordination of fiscal policy and monetary policy towards achieving economic growth. It says job-creating industries need more support. Godongwana explains. Develop and support those industries that would rapidly absorb employment, domestic and African focus growth. And, and this may include tax credit for those companies that invest in sustainable job creation. Utilize government procurement muscle to localize industries, transfer knowledge and skills to ensure that the industry could provide the required products in, into the future, thereby producing, reducing imports in due course. Chief Economist at Economatrix, Dr. Azad Jamin, says policy certainty, not a stimulus package, is key to solving the country's economic crisis. No, uh, no, I don't believe it's going to make all that much difference. I think that sentiment is highly depressed at the moment uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, confidence has been broken by this whole uh, d- debate around land expropriation without compensation, and that is acting as a huge deterrent to investment. Uh, Secondly, um, the fall in the value of the rand has destroyed hopes of much revival in economic growth. 
output in the agricultural sector fell by 29%, making it the largest contributor to the technical recession recorded in the second quarter of the year. Agricultural economist Wandile Sishobo says the problem is not a policy issue, but rather a result of nature. I think at this time around, it's really the issue of nature, not so much of the policies that are are busy conflicting in the sector as we speak. Uh, Look, what really happened is, as you know, the Western Cape has been under tough drought. Um, and that we saw the impact of it on the first quarter numbers. But you remember that uh, what we harvest or the output of that province does roll on largely on the first quarter, but a bit of it also rolls over to the second quarter. And I think that the tail end effects of that did play a part of that. Finance Minister Ntlantlanene is reported to have said that a stimulus package was under review. He says he hopes that it will be ready before the tabling of the midterm budget policy statement. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event. I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Let's go back in time to today in 1972. The Summer Olympics resumed in Munich, Munich, West Germany, a day after the deadly hostage crisis that claimed the lives of 11 Israelis and five Arab abductors. Today in history, 1972. Seventy-five minutes of intense physical activity per week, that's all it takes to avoid serious diabetes, cancer, dementia and mental health problems, according to the World Health Organization. Dr. Regina Guthold says one in three women and one in four men don't do enough physical activity to stay fit. So we looked globally how much percent of the adult population does not reach this threshold where you would start to get a health benefit from physical activity. And we saw that globally it's more than a quarter of adults that do not meet these recommendations. And that is unevenly distributed between men and women. It's 23% of men globally and 32% of women. And you're finding that the wealthier a country, the more inactive they are. Yes, that is correct. And that comes along with countries getting richer, countries urbanize. People tend to move from rural areas where they maybe used to work as farmers with a heavy manual work to cities. And they find themselves either without a job or doing a job in an industry where they have a very sedentary work. So they're not being active at work anymore. So these transitions that countries go through 
with the richer countries being less active. That's one of the reasons that the jobs get less active and sedentary. So that means countries, as they transition, um, they need to create the spaces for people to be more active during leisure time and also for transport. So you're asking for local governments and cities to provide pavements and to also provide more parks and recreation facilities. I thought one of the interesting things you said in an earlier press conference was that people's recreation, there's so much going on online now, particularly with children, and this report was only for adults. I mean, I, I dread to think what you might find for children. So we have collected very similar data for children. Also, we have produced estimates for children, but they're not published yet. But I can say that the picture does not look very different for children. Many, many children are not meeting the WHO recommendations. They're even harder to meet. Children are supposed to move more than adults. They're supposed to do an hour of activity a day. And very few children globally do meet these recommendations. Right. So what should adults be aiming for? Um, How much activity? What kind of activity? What's the, the magic number? Any kind of activity is good, be it at work, at home, for transport, during leisure time. Adults should be aiming at doing 150 minutes of moderate activity per week. That could be faster walking or cycling or swimming. Could also be work in the garden, some light work or some recreational volleyball. So any type of moderate activity that makes You breathe harder and makes your heart rate go up would be okay. It could also be vigorous activity. If the intensity is higher, you can do less. (laughs) 75 minutes of vigorous activity would be enough. In a week. In a week, yes. So that's one hour, 15 minutes of vigorous activity per week. That is playing soccer or playing tennis, fast bicycling, or very heavy lifting could be at work. More is better. (laughs) More is better. I was going to say, what are the risks of not... Uh, following your recommendations. What's going to happen to us if we don't move around enough? So you increase your risks to get in bad health. Uh, Physical activity, physical inactivity, I should say, is a risk factor to develop chronic disease, such as heart disease, stroke. It gets a bigger risk of developing specific types of cancers, influences mental health, weight control, so many, many factors. And what's the the biggest challenge, do you think, in terms, we've already mentioned the way that people's recreational leisure time is spent, maybe online, so they're not moving in a way that perhaps they might have kicked a football when they were younger. But uh, how can we perhaps harness technology and innovation to help people move a bit more? In my opinion, the, the most important thing is to create environments where people have the opportunity to be active, create parks, create safe places where people can walk. I think this is a very big challenge. As cities get bigger, make sure that they're not only good for cars, but also for cyclists, for people that want to walk in a safe environment. And you're seeing that the problem of inactivity isn't just exclusive to richer nations, it's also happening more and more to middle-income countries. Mm -hmm. How close are middle-income countries to reaching dangerous levels of inactivity and how far off are low-income countries because they seem to be far more active than everybody else? Middle-income countries, the percentage of people not reaching the recommended levels is 28%. So that's almost a third of the population. That is quite a high level already. And low-income countries is still relatively low. That's 16%. But if nothing is done as countries transition, the problem will, will increase. And what we're aiming for globally is to reduce insufficient activity by 15% by 2030.
That's World Health Organization's Dr. Regina Guthold speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Zimbabwe swears in new members of parliament after the July elections with the ruling ZANU-PF commanding a majority of over two-thirds enough to amend the constitution. More than 400 people from across West Africa have been rescued from a desert in northern Niger and at least eight people have died and over 30 are missing after a powerful 6.6 magnitude quake rocked the northern Japanese island of Hakkaido, triggering landslides and collapsing houses. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, and It is 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, according to renal experts, more than 850 million people worldwide suffer from kidney disease. Although accurate statistics are not available in South Africa, hypertension and type 2 diabetes are the dominant diseases associated with end-stage kidney disease, particularly in black ethnic groups. As the country marks Kidney Awareness Week from the 2nd to the 6th of September, the Life Healthcare Group is educating the public on signs and symptoms of kidney disease. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Zakaria Ganget, who specializes as a nephrologist in Parktown, Johannesburg. Dr. Ganget, thank you so much for joining us on Africa's Rise and Shine and good morning. Good morning to you and your listeners, and thanks for the opportunity. Now, you have to explain to us, nephrologist, what speciality is that? Nephrologist is, uh, you are a kidney specialist in essence. So I mean, you have gone through your undergraduate training and qualified as a specialist physician, and then following that, take a further interest in kidney medicine. And... Uh, further training to become a nephrologist and my focus at this point is uh, predominantly managing kidney disease. Now speaking of kidney disease, experts like yourself often uh, go undetected because there are no obvious symptoms prior to kidney decompensating. Explain this challenge to us. That is completely true. Uh, I think what what happens is uh, Within the early stages of kidney disease, the disease is often asymptomatic, meaning that someone with early kidney disease or early kidney dysfunction may find themselves feeling completely normal and not, not having any particular symptoms. The second issue is even as it progresses, a lot of the symptoms of kidney disease tend to be very nonspecific so are not necessarily attributable to kidney disease or kidney disease alone and may reflect many other illnesses. And because of that overlap, uh, patients and medical practitioners may may initially overlook uh, these subtle symptoms. Now, so what should people be aware of or do to avoid kidney disease? 
in 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 discussing kidney disease, I mean the the, the spectrum of kidney disease is very broad. You have some causes that unfortunately are not preventable, and they include uh, you know, inherited causes of kidney disease and 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 the like. But the large majority of kidney disease is attributable to lifestyle issues. Uh, for instance, uh, diabetes, uh, hypertension, uh, the use of uh, anti-inflammatories, uh, HIV within within uh, the Southern African setting, all of these are risk factors for developing kidney disease. So when, when talking about trying to avoid kidney disease, in, uh, we really pretty much say that if we're able to prevent these risk fire risk diseases, the diabetes, hypertension, uh, and so forth, and or appropriately manage them when they do occur, we can definitely lessen our risk of developing kidney disease and the complications thereof. The different stages of kidney disease, can you take us through those? When kidney disease is staged very broadly, so in other words, I mean, uh, when, when talking about kidney disease, we've got to get back to what, what the kidney does and uh, its function. So the kidneys are a pair of organs that act as filters for the body. In other words, they tend to filter the body's toxins. They tend to control the body's acid levels. They filter blood on a continued basis. And the function of the kidney is generally measured by how well the kidneys are functioning. So in other words, a person with a pair of healthy kidneys would often filter probably between 80 and 120 mils of blood on a minute-by-minute basis. And as the filters no longer work as efficiently, and uh, the amount of blood being filtered on a minute-by-minute basis decreases, you then start uh, developing certain signs. So kidney disease is staged according to uh, stage 1 through to 5, where stage 1 means that your kidneys are functioning close to normal. And as you progressively head towards stage 5, the kidneys filter less and less. So uh, if we were, for instance, to talk about stage 3 kidney disease, the kidneys at that point are functioning between 30 and 60% of normal capacity, stage 4 being between 15 and 29% of normal capacity. And once the kidneys are functioning at less than 15% capacity, at that point you are classified as having end-stage kidney disease. And at that point there, that's also when there's the possible need for renal replacement therapy or dialysis, as you would uh, often uh, discuss with patients. Mm. Now, why is it that the black community in South Africa is most at risk of kidney disease? The black community in South Africa, in what we've noted is within the black ethnic population, unfortunately, there's a much, much higher risk of hypertension. And with hypertension, the cardiovascular and kidney complications of hypertension are also far higher than in any other race group or ethnic group. So what, what we're noting is that within the black community, unfortunately, there's a higher prevalence of hypertension, 
there's an earlier onset of hypertension and there's a greater severity of hypertension. So all of these factors unfortunately play into a far greater likelihood of developing kidney disease. The second uh, part is uh, access to primary screening, access to healthcare is an issue. And for that reason, even patients with mild kidney issues may find themselves um, going undetected for long periods of time. And by the time someone attends my practice, they've already got established kidney disease that is irreversible. Uh, within the sub-Saharan African community as well, the prevalence of HIV uh, is high, and this in itself is also a risk factor uh, for developing kidney disease. Now, Doc, in terms of kidney disease, is it treatable, firstly, as you mentioned, all the different stages, and once a person is on dialysis, is it treated, or is that a case where um, a transplant is required, and what are some of the challenges in that regard? When, when looking at kidney disease, within the early stages of kidney disease, often we try and address the underlying risk factors. So if someone's got hypertension or diabetes, or if someone's been abusing anti-inflammatories, or they've got other, uh, other issues that are contributing to their kidney disease, by managing those underlying risk factors, by managing the hypertension well, by managing the diabetes well, by managing some of these risk factors, we can often reverse or alternatively slow down progression of the kidney disease substantially such that it doesn't progress to being in stage. So that would be within the earlier stages of kidney disease, stage one, two, three. Once you've got established chronic kidney disease that is of greater severity, so within the stage four and five, unfortunately in those instances there, you, you may have missed the window of opportunity for reversing it. And then often what is required from our side is to educate the patient and to try and prepare the patient for, uh, for further therapy. In other words, I mean, we've got to consider uh, forms of renal replacement therapy, especially when patients uh, are close to stage five. And that would entail, firstly, either looking towards transplantation in younger, uh, healthier patients. And uh, we'd also look at dialysis in in that setting as well, because at the point that the kidney function at less than 15%, unfortunately, uh, during that stage or during that time, the kidneys themselves are not doing sufficiently well to keep someone healthy. And and there may be a need for dialysis. Dialysis itself is not uh, a cure for kidney failure. It is simply a form of renal replacement therapy so it assists in doing the job that the kidneys are no longer doing um, well enough at that point. Let's speak about, um, uh, Doctor, sorry to, to cut you off there, but let's very quickly speak about uh, um, the issue of alcohol and uh, kidney disease. Is there a, a relationship, is there a coloration there? Um, does alcohol exacerbate um, kidney disease? Alcohol and kidney disease, there is a relationship. The relationship is not really clearly defined. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the 
the, the large majority of issues relating to alcohol pretty much affect the liver and the heart. And often there's a knock-on effect of the, on the kidneys um, as a result of complications of heart disease and, and liver disease uh, as such. So what, what you'd find is someone who's abusing alcohol or using it in excess may develop other organ dysfunction. And whenever the milieu or the, uh, the, 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 there's some degree of organ dysfunction in the body, you tend to have a knock-on effect on the kidneys and kidney function, and that that is what we would see most commonly. In terms of uh, alcohol directly affecting the kidneys, that relationship is less well-defined. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That's Dr. Zakaria Gangat, specializing as a nephrologist in Parktown, Johannesburg. Channel Africa. Kulta Njoy, Addis Ababa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noel Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka. In Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Let's go back in time to today in 1966. South Africa's Prime Minister Hendrik Verwoerd was stabbed to death by an apparently deranged parliamentarian service officer, Dimitri Safenders, during a parliamentary session in Cape Town. During his trial, Safenders claimed that a giant tapeworm inside him had instructed him to kill the Prime Minister. Today in History, 1966. Our economics update up next with Tabisolo Hoko. Good morning. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has lobbied big names for the much-anticipated investor conference planned for next month. He has invited China's richest man, Jack Ma, to the October gathering. Ramaphosa is currently on an investment charm offensive, trying to raise $838 billion US dollars in the next few years. The October conference is seen as a platform to help meet the target. Ramaphosa says having Jack Ma amongst the attendants will give impetus to what he wants to achieve. Today for me begins to solidify the partnership that Alibaba and South Africa is now forging. We're going to crown this obviously by attending our investment conference in October and I'm glad that you have accepted our invitation because uh, 
many people having heard that you're coming to our investment conference all of a sudden also want to come. So when Jack Ma comes to an investment conference, uh, he attracts obviously a lot of attention and we're particularly pleased about this. I raised this with uh, President Xi Jinping and uh, he was particularly pleased. Workers affiliated to Trade Union Solidarity at South Africa's petrochemical firm Cecil have embarked on a strike at the firm's Sekunda plant in Mpumalanga province. The strike is over the shared scheme that the firm has exclusively offered to black staff. Solidarity believes that the scheme is discriminatory as it excludes white workers. Members of Solidarity have already started arriving at the plant. Solidarity is at Dirk Herman. There's a big maintenance program running at this stage um, at Sasol. They call it a shutdown. And, um, and for that, they need all their skilled workers. For every hour that um, the program is delayed, it's run about a million rand that is lost. At this stage, we know the whole maintenance program is now delayed. Vodacom Lesotho Telecom has availed the ultra-high-speed 5G cellular technology network, the first such commercial service in Africa. The technology will show for a wide range of benefits and use cases in a rapidly advancing technology. The organization said earlier this week that subscribers, especially business entities in Lesotho, will now enjoy high ultra-speed internet connections thanks to the pioneering introduction of the commercial 5G service. African energy ministers are calling for the stabilization of the volatile price the oil price in particular. This is both consumers and producers want predictability in the petroleum market. Global oil prices have escalated by more than 10% in the last month. Amina Akram reports. Mohamed Barkindo is Secretary General of OPEC. He says they are working with all member countries and other organizations to stabilize global oil prices. However, OPEC says the prices are driven by what happens in the markets and sometimes this is beyond their control. There has been a minimal increase in Botswana's total gross domestic product in the last two years, while output of all non-mining sectors registered a positive growth in the first quarter of 2018. Mining is still the main contributor to the national purse. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.78 Botswana Pula. It's at 10.28 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 4.15 Brazilian roll, 68.22 Russian ruble, and at 71.55 Indian rupee, 6.85 Chinese yuan, 15.42 to the South African rand, 77 pence to the British pound, 86 cents to the euro, gold $1,198, platinum $782 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $77.26 a barrel. From an African perspective, you're listening to Channel Africa. Our sports update up next is Figuelingwati.
In our sports update, we begin with rugby news. Springbok coach Rasi Rasmus has reshuffled his forwards for the rugby championship clash with Australia in Brisbane on Saturday. In a new look, front row Steve Kishoff and Bongim Bonambi start next to Franz Malhebe, Sia Kolisi, switches flanks and Peter Steve Dutoy starts as blindside flank. Elton Yankees is the starting fly half. Damien D'Alende will start as Jesse Creel's center partner. Malcolm Max and Tendaim Dawarira are both on the bench along with the newly arrived Francois Lowe and the uncapped Cheston Colby. Australia have fewer changes, but Michael Chaker spring a surprise by dropping fly half Bernard Foley and replacing him with Kurtley Bale, who usually plays at centre. In boxing news, commitment and perseverance do pay, and people like reigning world boxing organisation WBO bantamweight champion Zolani Lasbontete can attest to this. Tete received a major boost ahead of his World Boxing Super Series, the WBSS fight against Russian Mikhail Aloyan on the 13th of October in Russia. Mercedes-Benz South Africa, MBSA, presented Tete with a new Mercedes C43 AMG, which cost more than 65,000 US dollars at its MBSA plant in East London, South Africa's Eastern Cape province. You know, this means a lot to me. This is one of the best opportunities that not everyone do get. Uh, I believe this is a step uh, that makes that means to me that I must push hard. You know, it's always been a dream to see myself driving these such cars, but I never thought it would happen so soon. And because of the way I am and the way I work, I believe today was the day. I mean, I'm a two-time world champion. I believe maybe it could have happened when I became the first the first time I became a world a world champion. But uh, Today it is definitely happening and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to drive the car. I mean, I'm honored. The WBSS pits the best eight bantamweight boxers in the world and Dede is looking forward to this fight. You know, if I can say this is going to boost my spirit because I've, I've, I've been always working hard, but to, to go to the gym now driving a make, I mean, it's one thing that I would look forward to uh, and I can't, I can't wait to, to get inside the ring and fight. Uh, we've been working now for almost five weeks already preparing for this fight. There's still six more weeks to go and we are more than ready for the fight. And come the, the fight night, uh, you will see Uzulan Tate knocking out Mikhail Aloyan. Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson and Brayson DeChambeau have been added to the U.S. Ryder Cup team when Jim Furyk announced three captains' picks. There were no surprises when Furyk revealed his selection in Philadelphia as the trio had virtually picked themselves. DeChambeau for his recent form and Woods and Mickelson for their vast experience in the event. Here is Jim Furyk. Yeah, I think we talked about all year we were looking for uh, a number of different things, but players that had a good body of work, that had played good this season, uh, players that were in good form, and, you know, we're headed over to Europe. We're heading over into, uh, you know, uh, foreign soil. Uh, it's going to be uh, an interesting crowd. They're, they're boisterous. I have a lot of respect for them, and we're looking for players that we thought would, would handle that situation well and that would thrive, would love the challenge ahead of them. And I think uh, in naming these three players, uh, that's what we've done. The U.S. will defend the cup at the 20, 20 to the 30th of September event against Europe at Le National in Paris. Furyk heaped praises on the trio, particularly 14 times major champion Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods has this to say. Well, at the beginning of the year, that was one of my goals was was to 
to make this team. I, I got the call from, from Jim, and he asked if I would serve as a vice captain. I said, absolutely, um, anything to help you out. Uh, but also, deep down, I wanted to make the team. Uh, I really wanted to play on it. Now, I hadn't started playing golf really yet, uh, but still I wanted, still, I was, I was a goal at, at the end of the season is to be able to, uh, to make this team. And as the year progressed, it, I've kind of gained some traction and I was somehow able to to get some high finishes and and lo and behold, I'm, I'm a part of this team. Uh, it's it's incredible. I mean, it really is to look back at at the start of the year and now to have accomplished a goal like that to be a part of this team um, and now to be a player. It's just as I said, it's beyond special. That's sport news this hour. Africa rise and shine Africa zosa Africa amuka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the sour ethnic clashes erupt at a UN camp in South Sudan and Malawi rights defenders postpone anti-government protests. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.